0: As of today, we've crossed the halfway point in the series. We're on the downhill slide. We've talked about greed, gluttony, sloth, and lust. This morning, we're going to talk about wrath or anger. And then we've got two more Sundays. We're going to talk about envy and pride. I mentioned a few weeks ago that a lot of people joked with me that they wanted to skip the week on gluttony. And we talked about what that might reveal about ourselves and our uh, level of being comfortable with a particular sin and not viewing it quite as the same as the others, I'll be honest with you and tell you the one that I have been dreading is wrath, anger. It's the one that I thought maybe I can skip that one and I won't have to think about it myself and no one will notice, but we're going to talk about it this morning and it's certainly something that's convicting for me. All of these sins on some level ought to be convicting for all of us. And so, we're going to talk about wrath this morning and try to be honest about it while also being hopeful. We've said over the last few weeks that this grouping of sins, the seven deadly sins, is not a biblical grouping in the sense that the Bible does not list these seven together. The grouping of these seven is something that's developed through the years of church history. We can go back to Evagrius, the monk, we can talk about Pope Gregory. We can talk about Hieronymus Bosch, the Dutch artist. We can talk about Dante, the Italian poet. All of these men have played a role in our thinking about these seven sins as the seven deadly sins. Now, I want to be honest. These are not household names in the year 2020. In fact, my guess is, other than Dante, you probably hadn't heard about most of these guys until we've talked about them over the last few weeks. So I want to talk about a few household names as we start this morning. Let's talk about Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. Some of you remember in 1995, a movie came out, and the movie was titled Seven. It is a police movie, a crime movie. The movie is about a serial killer, and the serial killer is going around a particular town. He is choosing his victims based on the fact that they have committed one of the seven deadly sins in a particularly egregious way. And so the movie develops and the cops are trying to find the bad guy and he's killing one person after another and you're moving through the seven deadly sins. One of the things the movie does a good job of is showing you just how ugly these sins are. Sometimes in our day and age, we tend to laugh at these sins. We tend to take them lightly. We don't really take them seriously. The movie shows you in a very dramatic way that these sins are incredibly destructive, not just in the sense that a serial killer might come looking for you, but in your own life. These are destructive patterns of behavior. In the movie, you find yourself obviously rooting for the cops. You're rooting for them to catch the bad guy. You have had a long time to watch this movie and figure out how it ends, but I'm not going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it in the last 25 years. There's a twist at the end, and the twist is really, really interesting in the sense that you have been rooting for the cops to catch the bad guy as he's committing all of these crimes, and in the end you find yourself rooting for the cop to be the bad guy and to act out the last sin in the movie, which is the sin of wrath. There's a shift when you see this twist in the movie. You go from saying this needs to stop to saying, well, maybe just one more. I would suggest to you that that same kind of shift takes place in our hearts on a regular basis when it comes to sin in general, and when it comes to the seven deadly sins in particular. It's easy to say, we don't like these things. But it's also easy to find yourself in a circumstance or a situation where you say, well, maybe just one more. Look at this quote from Brian Hedges. I think it illustrates my point. It's one thing to oppose sin in principle. It's one thing to sit in this room on a Sunday morning and fill out your sermon notes and nod in affirmation and say amen and say yes, these are terrible things. That's one thing. It's quite another to actually do the bloody work of crucifying specific sin patterns in our lives. Sometimes, I think with wrath this is true, these patterns are difficult to detect and always they fight back. Our aim in this series, our aim this morning is to see our sin for what it is and to put it to death. Not because we're trying to earn our way with God. Jesus has earned our way with God. But our desire is to be Christ-like, which means we've got to put these sins to death. So let's start with the definition. This is a little bit longer than the definitions I've given you in previous weeks, but here it is. Wrath is anger. At the wrong things, with the wrong people, in the wrong way, in the wrong time, for the wrong reasons. It's all wrong. Gentleness, or you might say meekness, is the virtue that corresponds with this vice. In some combination, something goes wrong when it comes to anger doesn't have to be all of these things that are wrong. It can be just one or two or all of them. But wrath, as we're thinking about it this morning, is anger at the wrong things, the wrong people, the wrong way, the wrong time for the wrong reasons. What we want to be is gentle. And when I say we want to be gentle, most of you think, and I'm prone to think, oh, he wants us to be softies. He wants us to be a bunch of pansies. He wants us to just be pushovers. That's not the biblical idea of gentleness. Here's the biblical idea of gentleness. Are you ready? Biblical gentleness is being angry at the right things with the right people in the right way in the right time for the right reasons. That's what it means to be gentle in the biblical sense. It doesn't mean you don't ever get upset about anything. It means you do it in the right way all the way through from beginning to end. Gentleness is anger that is not tainted by other sins. It's anger that is fenced in by the fruit of the Spirit we would call self-control. I think in the year 2020, you don't have to look very far to find angry people. I think you've seen plenty of them on display recently. And if you haven't, all you have to do is pick up that little rectangular device you carry around in your hand, turn it on, get on Facebook, Get on Twitter, get on Instagram, sounds like you've got one more day to get on TikTok, if TikTok's your thing, whatever you want to get on, you just get on social media, you will find plenty of angry people. And the code word in 2020 isn't wrath or anger, the code word is outrage. Everyone is outraged. And people proclaim how outraged they are as, that, as if that's going to end all debate or conversation about a particular topic. Well, I feel outrage about this. And I think you understand at this point in this series that social media is not helpful for us processing our outrage, our wrath, our anger. It's not a helpful way to deal with this particular emotion, with this particular sin in fact all social media does is it gives us a platform to tell everyone just how angry we are because as you know everyone needs to know about the 15 year old girl at taco villa who gave you a bean burrito instead of a meat burrito that's worth being angry about and everyone needs to hear about it right Or the lady on 42nd Street that moves into your lane without using her blinker. And yes, I'm saying lady who moves into your lane without using her blinker. That lady. Everyone needs to know about that, right? And everyone needs to know just how ticked off you are. Or everyone needs to know, well, I don't like the decision that this person made because it affects me in this way. We say I'm outraged. And we have this platform to share that with the widest possible audience. It may just not be the best way to deal with anger. So let's start with this. Why is this such a common problem? The answer here, I'll say this on the front end, the answer here is a little bit more complicated than it is with some of the other deadly sins. I'm going to share something with you. I'm going to say something about anger that we haven't said about any of the others and we're not going to say the next two weeks. Here it is. We're actually commanded to be angry. That's a piece in this puzzle that we've got to have clear. We are actually commanded to be angry. Look what the Bible says in Ephesians 4. Be angry and do not sin. Paul doesn't say, don't be angry so that you won't sin. He actually commands the church in Ephesus. He commands us. Be angry and do that without sinning. That's a possibility in Paul's mind that a person could feel anger and it not be sinful anger. Look at the book of James, chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why should we be slow to anger? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James knows that our anger... The anger of human beings does not lead to righteousness. But he doesn't say, don't ever get angry. Instead, what he's saying is you should be like God. How many times does the Old Testament tell us that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? It tells us over and over and over again. And James picks up on that and he says, not, never be angry. He says, Be slow to anger, just like God is slow to anger, because your anger, the anger of man, does not lead to righteousness. Behind these two verses is a really important biblical truth that we've got to get square in our minds and our hearts. Here it is God is angry about sin and all its manifestations, He's angry with sinners. And God in human flesh, Jesus who walked on this earth and died for our sins, Jesus was angry with sin and angry at sinners. I'll put a few verses up on the screen. You can look at these verses that talk about God's wrath, his anger, verses that talk about Jesus' wrath and his anger. You look these verses up and you come away saying, there is a kind of anger that's not sinful. There is a kind of anger that is, in fact, right. God feels that kind of anger. Jesus, when he walked on the earth and when he returns to the earth, is going to feel that sort of anger. This is a difference between all these other deadly sins. We wouldn't say, well, God sometimes lusts. Well, God sometimes does this. He sometimes does that. But there is a sense in which God gets angry. And it's right for him to be angry. And There's a sense in which Jesus experienced anger and it wasn't a sinful kind of anger. I, I would say to you when you see domestic abuse or child abuse, you should get angry. In fact, if you don't get angry, something's probably wrong internally. I would say when you see racism or riots, you should get angry. You should feel in your soul, that's not right. I think any time you see sin on display, there's a sense in which you and I ought to be angry. However, we want to be angry without sinning, and we want to be slow to anger. Ephesians 4 and James 1. That's where we come in, and that's where the problems come in. There is a sense in which we're commanded to be angry, but secondly, this is a common problem because our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are sinful. We're a lot like Cain. You see this kind of anger, this sinful anger on display in the earliest chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. You read about brothers, Cain and Abel, and they come to the Lord with an offering. Cain brings an offering and Abel brings an offering. The Bible says that God had regard for Abel's offering. He did not have regard for Cain's offering. And in that moment, when Cain's offering was not accepted, Cain gets angry. God calls him on it. Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you angry, Cain? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. What sin is crouching at his door? It's the sin of anger. God just talked about it in verse 6. This sin of anger is crouching at your door. The language there describes a wild animal ready to pounce on its victim and kill it. That's what sin is doing. It is crouching at your door, Cain, and it wants to kill you. Why are you so angry? Everything's gone wrong in Genesis 3, and you see it in the hearts of God's people in Genesis 4. Rather than simply repent of his sin and apologized to the Lord, he's angry. And you know what? He acts it out. He doesn't kill it. He doesn't fight it. He lets it grow in his heart and in his mind. He lives it out in real life with his brother Abel. And in the end, he does exactly what we try to do. He tries to justify his anger. That's the third thing I want you to see. Why is wrath such a common problem? Well, it's very easy to justify our anger. We all do it. We all look at other people and say they have an anger problem, and we look in the mirror and say, but my anger is right. Their anger is wrong. Mine is right. People who are given to hot anger, explosive anger, outbursts, they do this. They justify it. They explode, they say hateful, hurtful things, they say them in a mean way at the wrong time to the wrong people, all of that, it's all wrong. And then they say, that's just how I am. I just tell it like it is. And we say, no, you're just sinful. You're angry. And you know what? Those of us who are given to cold anger do the exact same thing we justify it. We don't explode. We don't yell and scream. We don't throw things against the wall, but we simmer, and we stew on it, and we refuse to let it go, and we justify it. We tell ourselves, I'm right to feel this way. If only you knew the situation, you would know how right I am to feel the things that I'm feeling. Whether you're given to hot anger, explosive anger, cold anger, simmering anger, we love to justify it and pretend that it's right. The reality is this is a deadly sin and this is a sin that has serious consequences. I want you to see some of those consequences. Why is wrath so deadly? One and two, there are physical consequences and there are mental, you could say emotional consequences. Physical and mental consequences. Those of you given to hot anger, you know that in those moments of outbursts, of rage, your face gets flush, your heartbeat accelerates, your blood pressure rises, there is a physical response. And those of you given to cold anger know that the response may not be as dramatic in the moment, but it's there, a physical response. You live with this low-grade, constant sense of angst and anxiety and uneasiness, and it plagues you constantly. In some sense, it's almost worse than someone with explosive anger because you just live with that sense of uneasiness and bitterness. When people give full vent to their anger, whether that's Cold anger or hot anger, the results are devastating. Devastating. I thought this week about all the years I've been a pastor, and I thought about some of the most miserable people I've ever met. They were all angry. Some of them explosively angry, some of them coldly angry but they were miserable human beings. And I think for most of them, it boiled down to anger. There's a physical consequence. There's a mental consequence. Thirdly, why is it so deadly? There are relational consequences. Anger destroys relationships. James makes this point in James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't it this, that your passions are at war within you? Isn't the problem your heart, your passions, your desires, The fights and the quarrels, don't point out there, look in here. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. This sort of strife destroys marriage relationships. It destroys parent and child relationships, and that can go both ways. It destroys the relationship between friends. It certainly affects churches. It's why when Paul gave instructions about who ought to be a leader in a church, to Timothy and Titus, this long list of qualifications. One of the things that Paul said to these young men is, an elder must not be violent, he must be gentle. That doesn't mean he never gets riled up. That doesn't mean he's a pushover. It means he's right in the right way at the right time with the right people. It's all right. It's not wrong. Paul said, an elder must not be quarrelsome or quick-tempered. It can't be given to anger. It'll destroy a church. So it's deadly, physical consequences, mental consequences, relational consequences. Fourth, wrath has spiritual consequences. Each week, I've intentionally not put some of these verses on the screen. I'm challenging you. I'm begging you to go look them up on your own to follow up a Sunday morning with further thought. Look up these verses, Galatians 5. There's a long list of nasty stuff that keeps a person out of the kingdom of God. If you do these things unrepentantly, unremorsefully, you will not be part of the kingdom of God. Right in the middle, fits of anger. It's a bad list. There's a lot of stuff you would not want anyone to say about you, and right in the middle of it, fits of anger. Keeps you out of the kingdom of God. You can look at Ephesians 4. We read the first part. If you keep reading, Paul says, if you don't deal with your anger, you will give the devil a foothold in your life. Sunday morning crew, I bet most of you are not signing up to participate in seances. I bet you're not signing up and getting in line to practice occult magic. I bet you don't have books at home about Wiccan practices and witchcraft. You, you say, I don't want anything to do with that stuff. Paul says, if you hold on to anger in your heart and you don't deal with it, you are inviting the same sort of nonsense into your life. The devil, you are giving him a foothold in your life. You are inviting Satan himself, God's enemy, to have influence in your life when you don't deal with this sin. 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, God-honoring prayer is done without anger. If you have a problem with anger in your life, your prayer life will be lousy. It will not honor God. It's a sin with consequences, physical, mental, relational, spiritual. One of the authors I read this week said, holding on to anger in your life is like pouring acid into a plastic container. What gets destroyed first? The container. Then it spreads out and destroys something else. Another said it like this. I loved this one. Hanging on to anger in your life is like drinking rat poison and then watching and waiting for the rat to die. Good luck. It's a deadly, deadly Sin. It's a sin that we have to fight. I want to give you a few suggestions on how we fight this sin. Number one, we've said this every week, we've got to recognize wrath as sin. We have to be honest about it. It doesn't mean that all anger is sinful, but when it is sinful in our lives, we've got to be honest about that. We've got to recognize that. Look at Exodus 20, verse 13, commandment number 6. This is the one everyone gets if you ask them. Name a a commandment, one of the Ten Commandments. Everyone knows, do not kill, do not murder is on the list. You know, Jesus in Matthew 5 says you can actually break that commandment without shooting another person. You can break that commandment without stabbing someone. You don't have to be a serial killer, like in the movie 7. You don't have to bludgeon anyone to death. According to Jesus, all you have to do to break the sixth commandment is get angry at the wrong thing, with the wrong person, in the wrong way, at the wrong time, for the wrong reason. When you see that in your life, when I see that in my life, the only course of action that ought to be in front of us is repentance. It's what the psalmist talked about in Psalm 37:8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Turn from it, run from it, and... Believe the good news about the gospel. That's the second way that we fight the sin of wrath. We believe the gospel. You're not going to beat this sin until you believe the good news of the gospel. And believe it or not, the gospel is a story about wrath. It's a story about the ancient of days, the creator, who looks on his creatures and sees their sin and their wickedness and their rebellion And he gets angry, really angry, righteously angry. He gets so angry that in eternity past, he decided to do something about his anger, and that something was sending his son to live a life that was anger-free, sin-free, sin-free, and to die on the cross for our sins. In dying on the cross... Jesus is cursed in our place. The wrath of God is poured out on him. Paul says this in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God's anger towards sin was poured out on the cross. The biblical term is God's wrath was satisfied. We sing about that, whether you know it or not. We sing about it, and we're going to sing about it before we leave today in the song, In Christ Alone. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness. He was righteous. He never sinned. He never got sinfully angry. He was scorned by the ones that he came to save until on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied satisfied. It was poured out in full. It wasn't just swept under the rug, but it was dealt with. Every sin on him was laid, which means in the death of Christ, we live. One, we acknowledge it as sin. Two, we believe the good news of the gospel. Three, I think we need to ask God to make us loving. I think we just need to acknowledge that left to ourselves, we're not very loving. And we need him to make us loving. The definition of love I'm drawing off of is 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's not a conversation about Marriage. If you go back and look at 1 Corinthians, it's a conversation about a church and the kind of love that we ought to have for each other in a church family. And I think we just ought to be honest. We're talking about wrath. I think we just ought to look at that verse and say, God, without your help, that's not me. God, I have a problem with explosive anger, and I need you to make me more like that. God, I have a problem with cold, simmering, smoldering, bitter anger. And nobody would believe that I struggle with it if I told them, but it's there in my life and it's making me miserable and I need you to make me more like that. That's not who we are apart from God's work in our life and I think we just ought to admit it and ask for God's help. How do we fight it? Number four, we need to discern the idolatries that cause us to be angry. I don't have a verse here. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you. I'm not asking you to lay down on the pew and kick back and enter the psychiatrist office. I just want you to think about why you're angry for a second. Why are you so angry at that 15-year-old kid at Taco Villa? I mean, really? You say, well, I'm angry. She gave me the wrong burrito. Everyone needs to know about it. And I would say, I don't think that's really why you're angry. Say, I'm angry at that lady or guy on 42nd Street who cut me off acting like I'm not there. They know I have a baby on board sticker on the side of the car. So rude and hateful. I'm angry about that. I don't think that's really why you're angry. Say, well, I'm mad about this person and that decision and how it affects me or this policy or that rule or whatever. I don't think that's really why you're angry. I don't think that's really why I'm angry. I think most of the time when we get sinfully angry, it's because our idols are being challenged. Maybe sometimes they need to be challenged. And I'm not talking about idols like Baal or Molech or Chemosh, a statue that you would go worship. I'm talking about the idol of comfort. I'm talking about the idol of my agenda and my plans and my schedule. I'm talking about the idol of my preferences. I'm talking about the idol of what I want being most important in my life. I'm talking about the idol of self. Sometimes that gets challenged and we get sinfully angry and we just need to be honest enough to step back and say, am I really angry with the 15-year-old kid at Taco Villa? Am I really angry at this person I don't even know who just switched lanes? Am I really angry about the thing they decided that I, I disagree with? Is that why I'm really angry? Or is there something internally that's off that I need to acknowledge? Last, one more thought. Let's allow anger to motivate us to action allow it to motivate us to action. Again, I don't have a verse here. I just I think and I would suggest to you for your consideration, maybe there's a, a slight difference in being an angry person and getting angry at something. Maybe there's a difference in allowing this sin of wrath and anger to shape who we are as people. That's what these deadly sins are. They're not so much about what we do or say. They're about who we are as people. Maybe there's a difference in that. And getting angry about something. Like I said earlier, there's some things that you ought to get angry about. When I tell you that there are billions of people on planet earth who have absolutely no access to the gospel. There's no First Baptist Church on the corner. There's no Bible in their language. There's no missionary there, there to tell them about Jesus. When I tell you that, I think you ought to get a little angry. And I think you ought to allow that anger to motivate you to do something about that kind of lostness. That's true whether it's on the other side of the world or on the other side of the street. When you see lostness in Odessa, Texas, people who do not have the hope of Jesus, it ought to make you a little bit angry. Not at them, but at the situation. And you ought to say, hey, I can do something about that. I can tell them about Jesus. It ought to motivate you to action. When we send mission teams to Kenya and you go... Or you stay and you help send somebody and we bring a report back and we say, hey, there's kids over there who are hungry. They don't have enough to eat. That ought to make you angry. You ought to get angry about that and you ought to say, let's do something about that. Here's an organization, Nourishing the Nations. We can help feed them. We can fill their belly and we can tell them about Jesus as we do it. When we sit in this room on a Sunday morning and we talk about deadly sins, and we say, oh, yeah, that's kind of a problem for me. Oh, yeah, that, one's, that one hurts. Yeah, that one too. It ought to make us angry. We ought to look at sin the way God looks at sin. God gets angry at sin, we ought to get angry at sin. We have a choice as believers. We have a, two options before us. We can allow sin to just be our identity, who we are. The core of our being, these sins and others can shape us and direct us. or We can allow them to make us angry and make us do something about it, which is pursue Christ's likeness. To acknowledge our sin to God, to believe the good news of the gospel, to say, I want this sin to die. Remember what we said earlier. It's one thing to oppose sin in principle. It's another thing to go about the bloody, messy, painful, slow work of putting sin to death in our lives.